You're listening to. Hey, welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here to talk about our February 2022 book club pick, Good Talk, by Mira Jacob. And we're joined by a very special guest. I think this is, it's not our first potluck crossover, but it's our first modern minority crossover. Welcome to host a fellow potluck pod of modern minorities, Roman Segal. Hi. Nice to be here. And Quarantine Comics. Right, yeah. You're, you're a double potluck pod host. <laughs> well, it's, it's great to be here about one of my all-time recent favorite books. Uh, so I feel like I get to read this book once a year, and I may or may not cry every time. So if I cry on this podcast, I, <laughs> I apologize. This yeah. is a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Is it? <laughs> Yeah, it's a safe space where over a thousand people will listen to this episode and wonder why you're crying. But uh, yeah, it's a safe space. Well, that means they don't listen to my other podcasts and cry with me on them. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, when Rira suggested that we read this book for February, I immediately thought of you because I remember seeing that this was your favorite book that you featured not on both of your other podcasts as well. So uh, definitely, if you want to get the whole Rum and Good Talk trilogy, you should definitely check out all of his podcast. <laughs> fun fact, though. So fun fact, I have a third podcast, which is a little more corporate with a nonprofit. And um, we just celebrated our 100th episode. And so the founding co-founding co-host and I, we kind of interviewed each other and we asked that like favorite book question at the end. And because I'd been reading this, I just had to talk about Good Talk. So Good Talk has now officially come up on every podcast that I've ever been on. So including guest appearances on other shows. So. Wow. I did not realize the Roman good talk trilogy was actually an expanded universe yes (laughs) well fun fact so fun fact i think this is public knowledge but i will check and you'll have to edit out if it's not good talk (laughs) has been optioned for television so i think we did we cover that or i don't know um it sounds familiar we may have it does sound (laughs) familiar but then again we cover so much news in in like the book to film adaptation world so but i wouldn't be surprised but this book came out in 2018, and man, when I started reading it, I was like, "This is a period piece." Like, I feel like we're <laughs> like, I feel like so much has changed. But every, everything's better now. Everything's time, better. But at the same time, nothing has changed. <laughs> Are things better? I mean, we're on a precipice of like a global conflict, potentially World War Three. It's bad times right now, and I did check our stats and. We do get occasionally one or two listeners from the Ukraine. So to our Ukraine listener slash listeners, um, hope you are staying safe during this conflict. And, you know, hopefully if you're still listening to us, this podcast will bring you a little bit of comfort as you go through this tough time. All right. Well, I think we should just dive in. Um, the, the, the full title of this book is Good Talk, A Memoir in Conversation. And a memoir in conversations is a very accurate description, in my opinion, for the format of this book, because everything is very short. All of the chapters are, I would say, like maybe three, four pages at at most. Yeah, it is a graphic novel. So a lot of the the book is in comic book form. I guess as we get started, Rewa, do you want to start with the, the book jacket description? Inspired by her popular BuzzFeed piece, 37 Difficult Questions from My Mixed Race Son, here are Jacob's responses to her six-year-old son, Zakir, who asks if the new president hates brown boys like him. Uncomfortable relationship advice from her parents, who came to the United States from India one month into their arranged marriage, and the imaginary therapy sessions she has with celebrities, from Bill Murray to Madonna. Jacob also investigates her own past from her memories of being the only non-white fifth grader to win a Daughters of the American Revolution essay contest to how it felt to be a brown-skinned New Yorker on 9-11. As earnest and moving as they are sometimes laugh-out-loud funny, these are the stories that have formed one American life. That's a very NPR. Like, I I heard that and I was like, 
that I mean, I guess that's accurate, but <laughs> it's a very NPR you, kind of review of it versus like you know how the, book jackets go, you know? Yeah, you but you have to hook in like the literary, uh, the literati, the literati, the literati. Yeah, the literati. <laughs> yeah, you can't go in with you're going to relive the run up to 2016 election, yeah, and all of your feelings um, during that like eight month period. Well, I mean, but it's so much more than that. Like, it's an emotional gut punch to like not I, I can't speak for everyone but for a lot of our lived experience the childhood the teenage the college the relationships the parents the and it's just i i'm sorry like this book it just uh, the way we described it I'll, every time i read a podcast description and i talk about this is like this this book hits too close to home like that's i don't know and that's a compliment that's the highest compliment it's just like an emotional gut punch every other chapter yeah, so I guess um, we always start off with general impressions. So, um, Rira, what were your uh, overall impressions of the book? Um, I was pretty excited to read it because I've heard so many great things about it. And graphic memoirs, um, you know, I wouldn't say that they're a new genre, but there's definitely been like a recent surge of them, in my opinion. And it's been really, it's been really great to see graphic memoirs from um, like, Asian Americans and other immigrant and marginalized experiences, a lot of those stories don't really get the mainstream uh, marketing, I guess. So I felt like Good Talk did get a lot of mainstream marketing because I just saw it everywhere. And I think Mira, like she uh, like posted the first comic, like the, the, the very opening chapter i think with her son talking about michael jackson and mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. oh is he is he white or black i think she posted that online first and then it went super viral and then that's how uh she ended up like making more comics and compiling them for this book that's i think that's what happened that's what i kind of read online but um overall i really liked it i liked how the chapters were very short and digestible I really like the art style. I don't know. It just reminded me of like Daria in a way where it's like very minimalistic um, and none of the faces have expressions. It's like all the same. They're and paper cuttings. They're actual paper cuttings. Yeah, they're paper cuttings. Yeah, yeah. I know some people were were a little bit weirded out by that on Goodreads saying like, why, why are they saying such serious things with such a straight face? And I'm like, well... This book is about being honest and having difficult conversations. So I like the fact that there were no expressions on on the uh, paper cutouts. And there were a lot of things that I could relate to in the book um, as like an Asian American immigrant, also uh, being in an interracial relationship with a white partner. And, uh, you know, like I'm not South Asian, but colorism is definitely a thing mm -hmm. in East Asian culture, too. So. Uh, there, there was a lot in this book. It was a lot of like samples, um, <laughs> if that's like a correct way to put it. Um, a trauma, a tra an emotional trauma, greatest hits. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> emotional. Yeah, and Raman, this is your. I don't know how many, how many times have you read this book now? We're coming up on five or six because, <laughs> like, I accidentally discovered this at the library. You know, back in 2019, 2018, 2019, and you know that's peak Trump era. It was kind of a dark period for us, and I just kind of picked it up. And I don't know. Um, I you know I'm a I'm a father of a young kid. My daughter, who's uh, half Chinese, half Indian, um, she would have been three at the time. And you know, we were it was a scary time. It just generally you know, what's going on in the world, and so to kind of see someone talk about the moment that we're in, but also talk about kind of all the root causes and of her fear and her emotions. Um, it just really resonated. And then obviously, um, you know, when we when we first reviewed it on Quarantine Comics, um, my comic book, Underground Comic Podcast, my reporter buddy Ryan, I actually brought Sharon, my modern minorities host, on it. And Sharon doesn't read a lot of comics. And um, you know, we just it just opens up a lot of conversations and comparisons to kind of what our lived experience was. Even me as a as a man hearing Sharon relate to being an Asian woman and kind of the expectations of parents and the kind of double standard against her brother. So I've read this over and over again in different lights. Uh, then when we had the privilege to interview Mira, obviously I read it one more time. And I feel like this is now a book I pick up every year or so. I've gifted this book God knows how many times as well to my sister, 
to white friends even um because i i think it's almost disarmingly honest like you're not sure what to expect when you read it because of the quote-unquote simplistic nature of it 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 packs an even harder punch because of it so yeah, yeah and every time something hits me differently what about you marvin yeah i mean i i went in not knowing what the book was about just the general description that it's centered on conversations with uh, Mira's son and I mean the art style was it's just very striking and it reminded me of a visual novel like because mm-hmm. the art style is just a lot of static characters mm-hmm. on different backgrounds mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but even though the art style is quote-unquote simplistic it allows her to do a lot of really interesting things with how she lays out the text there's a couple really beautiful just like spreads throughout the book mm-hmm. as well you know, reading through, it was really relatable as a diaspora member of American society, right? Um, the constant kind of tension of feeling other, feeling unsafe through the eyes of a child. To like, I think the book is framed, there's like, it's kind of like a dual narrative sort of, right? You have the timeline with the sun, which is present day. Yeah. Yeah. Concurrent with the Trump, you know, nomination and election mm-hmm. 20, in 2016. And then you have her story growing up in um, Albuquerque, New Mexico, trying to find a career in writing in New York. And a lot of that's super relatable too. Like there's that, um, I remember that one spread where it's just all the unsolicited feedback she gets about being a <laughs> South Asian writer in New York. Yeah. Try majoring in writing in New York and everyone telling you, hey, maybe you should do something else. And like thanks as if i did not think about that before (laughs) why do you think i'm doing writing it's because it's the only thing i think i'm decent at not even that but just the conflicting advice like don't write about ethnic stuff definitely capitalize on writing about (laughs) ethnic stuff (laughs) well i mean i'm assuming you well first and foremost like while this is a graphic memoir it looks and feels different from many graphic novels and comics and mira has said you know it was an ex- it was her own self experiment to break into comics, and it's not a world she is from. She is not a sequential artist. She taught herself to do this. She's an acclaimed author for a non graphic novel, right? Her her first novel, Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, it's actually a fictional account that mirrors kind of her life growing up, and so it's so it's almost like the prequel to this book, even though it's not right. Um, and, and I mean, I couldn't help but after reading this book the first time and maybe or maybe not crying, I had to pick up that book to kind of understand and see her execute in the other style. So this this book, Good Talk, is almost an evolution of her kind of want to, wanting to try new things and try new mediums and try new storytelling formats to capture those conversations more vividly than maybe prose could. Yeah. Yeah, memo writing is a little bit tricky because uh, you still want to have a relationship with the people that you write about in your mm-hmm. memoir. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas if you're writing a fictionalized story that's based on your real life, obviously there's a little bit of distance. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know, there's just like uh, like an organized story, a conclusion. Whereas with Good Talk, it's literally a series of conversations. And there really aren't any easy answers when it comes to growing up as a person of color in America and it really shows because her son asks really difficult questions and as a parent she's like I don't really know the answer I thought I would know the answer by the time I grew up but I guess we're all still growing up and uh it yeah it was it was very interesting reading this as someone who did not talk about race with her parents growing up because of the uh cultural and language barriers but Obviously, uh, my parents had their own racial prejudices and uh, just like a lot of uh, implicit biases. And I could definitely relate to that while I was reading the book. I don't know about you guys because I don't know your experiences. I mean, so we've read a lot of memoirs uh, for this book club. And I think a lot of times I say the same things every time, which is, you know, even though Mira's experiences aren't exactly similar to mine, right? Like, personally, I can't relate to growing up as the only Asian in a neighborhood because I wasn't. I grew up here in the San Gabriel Valley where up until even through college, my schools were always 40 to 50% Asian. Mm. 
so that feeling of isolation is something that I personally don't feel. But as someone who, you know, exists in America as, you know, a minority person of color, the feeling of like there's this tension throughout the book that I think you pick up on if you are like a person of color in America, right? Mm-hmm, e- mm-hmm. Like doubly so if you're like a, a dark skinned person of color. And I think that's something that is 100% relatable for a lot of us who exist in this country where, I mean, going back to the whole 2016 election thing, I think framing the book around that point in time is really important because for a lot of us, especially in at least, at least my generation, um, which is like the older millennial and younger, that was probably a lot of our first time realizing that like viscerally, there are two countries that we live mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. right? Um, because this is coming off the tail of the, you know, the quote unquote Obama era, which, you know, practically speaking, was probably not the promised time that we thought it was. But to backslide from then to, you know, the Trump era was like devastating for a lot of people. Well, I mean, it, it shows up in the book too. I mean, there's this momentous moment. There's kind of two, um, present moment tracks that are happening the run-up to obama is kind of a series of or an arc at the end of the book and the sheer optimism of like the new york times cover that obama won on top of her baby in the crib like i have hope for this world and literally the the trepidation the cautious optimism this is going to break our heart when it doesn't happen we can't let ourselves believe in this um if anything it even though you already know Trump will win and you even know how it's going to play out in the book, it it rubs a little salt in the wound to kind of show the hope paying off all the optimism of the moment because we already know from the previous chapter that it just gets taken away. Yeah, and that one chapter where it's the night of the election and they're having a party. I mean, how many of us were at those parties, right? And watching oh, man. I was, that I was map at turn that red. party. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of tears and it was it was like really interesting seeing the reactions of like my friends who were not white and then like my white friends like my white friends were like very devastated they're like oh my god i can't believe like this happened like man like we need to like you know protest and do all the stuff and then like the people of color in the room were just like oh man like <laughs> it's just like we we didn't want to believe it, but at the same time, like, I this guess, is yeah. kind of the world that we live in every <laughs> single day. It's not like we beat racism after Obama, you know, was was pre- president. So, like, for us, it was kind of like, we're, we're surprised, but not yeah, it was really like, heartbroken. <laughs> well, there, there's an amazing SNL sketch that shows the night, and Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock are the two black friends at the party. And it's that exact moment, right? It's like... All, all the white cast members at the party are just, like, devastated. They're like, yeah, called it. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting, Rira, you talked about um, writing a memoir, right? It's kind of a dangerous thing to do. And when we talked to Mira, something she kind of revealed were the kind of people that she had to kind of review this with. And she kind of played back kind of three kind of things. Her son, her in-laws, and her husband, right? Because these are people very near and dear to her heart. She loves her in-laws. Like, it is heartbreaking to her because she said it was really easy. It would be easy to paint them as monsters because they're not. They are still in her life. That's why it was so hard for her. Uh, Mira lost her father, so she is very close with her husband, Jed, a a prominent documentarian with with his parents. And she said when she went back and reread and edited herself of what she said about her in-laws, she had to put it through the filter of, am I doing it for clarity? Or am I doing it to kind of win an argument and be vindictive, right? And 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 in my mind, that's like, oh shit, there's another edit out there, right? But she, because she wanted just to to expose and be clear on what happened. But then with her son, it was she needed to read these chapters to her son to make sure he was okay with it because he's, I think, uh, Z is now probably fourteen now, but he was six or seven when she was making this book, and that's she really felt the tension of is this a fair thing? And then with her husband. You know, the big argument at the end with her husband. That is like such a true, like married people argument. But 
she was saying when she was letting her husband read it, and you know, he's a documentarian, they collaborate a lot. They literally got into the same argument over again about, oh, no. about that moment. It's like it's like that this one like territory that they can't come and touch like the, the NPR story anymore as a couple. So I, I just thought it was really fascinating to be like, if you're gonna put this thing out there in the world about the people you love, what is the accountability? Like it almost makes me afraid to I mean, I guess on our podcast, we sometimes talk about our lives, but like to write a book, man, fiction's way easier. The NPR guy sucked, though. I hope he knows what <laughs> yeah. he did. <laughs> yeah. Fuck that guy. <laughs> Can I say that on this podcast? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That was like one of my uh, favorite chapters in the book where <laughs> like with the email exchanges with the with the interviewer and, and like the fight that she has with her husband. Indian uh, Asian. That's a term, apparently. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, what? Like, I've never heard that term before. It's such (laughs) a, I mean, not to paint all NPR people in the same brush, but such like a, like a East Coast, like elite, like point of view say, no, this term is the most neutral and fair to all. I mean, what what made me like kind of lose my mind was the editor saying, oh, can we like change the names of your characters? Because they'll be like hard for our listeners to, I don't know, to like pronounce the names or to understand like, like they're different people. And I'm like, what? Like, that, yeah. you're asking a novelist <laughs> to change her character name? Like, why would you ask that? That is such like a betrayal, I think, when it comes to like, in- yeah, it was, it was just bizarre. Yeah, we- can you, can you talk down to our listeners, please? Right? <laughs> like, yeah. And when you think about it, I mean, this happened within the last decade. Right, like I said, it feels feels like a period piece. It feels like a different era, but at the same time, I, not much has changed. Yeah, I was gonna say that's where I disagree with you. Like this, this book, even though it talks about you know growing up in Trump and Obama's America, like there's so many truths that are still true. And the um, this book, like I, I think a lot about work like this. It's it's great that we're all Asian and we're reading this and we're all high-fiving and patting ourselves on the back that, oh, we felt this. This is experience. But like I need I, I need people's majority brains to read this. As I read this book as a man to understand things I don't understand, right? Like I have an older sister and I totally get the double standard that I lived against her with my parents, with how Mira and Arun live. Like, um so it's just like this is very opening for our kind of majority brains. And um I think that's who needs to be reading it. And you need to come at it from your majority experience. Yeah, because I feel like, and I think that's that's a challenge, right? That's why, you know, when, when whenever we put out lists about here's what she, whenever something shitty happens and we put out those lists of books you should read to be more empathetic, we worry, are we just preaching the choir? Because are, are the people who actually need to read this book going to read this book? Are they going to get what we hope they'll get without being defensive? Because I think about that one chapter with, um, Bree, was it the oh man the uh the person who hired her right? yeah and that like when i was reading that chapter i was so uncomfortable because we've all been in that i mean i don't know if we've all been in a position but i'm sure a lot of us who who do creative work have been in that position where we really need the money but man this person sucks <laughs> but that's universal it's not i mean it, the, the way mira writes it is as a minority experiencing the moment but I mean, but there's some, you know, and that's the beauty of, of good writing. Like there's things we can all cringe to that together, maybe for different reasons. Yeah. You know? And then, you know, that chapter ends with that beautiful, like writing on, like, I think it was either a sky or a building saying, you know, um, I didn't see you either. Uh, I didn't even try, which I, I'll push back in saying, no, she didn't see you first. It's not your job <laughs> to do emotional labor for the microaggressor. Okay. <laughs> no, Mira's trying to be the, the bigger person here. I thought it was interesting to read this book in a time where um, schools and parents are protesting against like critical race theory being taught in their classrooms and all of the book bans that have been happening recently. And with with the book bans, it's just it's just been really weird because because a lot of the choices that that they've made to ban certain books have just been so it, it's such a bullshit reason. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the like, reason is it, it makes me feel bad to be white. That's 
the reason to ban all of the books. That yeah, it, it's it's not it's not like the video games that our parents were like clenching their pearls for. Like, when, like it's not Mortal Kombat bad <laughs> shit. It's it really isn't. Like, and I've read almost all of these books and comics that are being banned right now, be it gender, queer, or mouse. It's it's kind of nuts. Like, it's like <laughs> at least be a little more subtle about your book banning racism. <laughs> like, but that's the thing. Like after 2016, like the like the subtle racism just like came out like as soon as trump became president i feel like the inner racists were just like yeah i have permission to (laughs) have my racist thoughts out there because now i have like now we have a president who is saying all these crazy things and yeah so with like the book bans I I'm just like these parents are saying I don't want my white child to feel bad about being white. I don't want other classmates who are not white to blame my child for making their life miserable. And I'm like that's not what critical race theory is. And in, in, par- in parallel, though, they're fighting for their freedom to not have to wear a mask. You know, so freedom yeah, freedom yeah, freedom yeah. applies selectively. <laughs> But it's just heartbreaking because, um, like, a lot of these, like, kids from marginalized backgrounds, like, they don't get their parents to shelter them from the experiences that will, you know, shape them, the trauma that will shape them. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, well, we're trying to teach empathy to our kids, right? That's the goal. But you're not extending the same level of protection. So, yeah, I thought well, you it was know, but, like, but, interesting. But, but, what's so interesting, though, about the book bans is, you know, book bans might have been effective in the 80s when you had to go to the library and get an encyclopedia and blah, blah, blah. Like, if anything, the book bans have helped with, the, like, the marketing of these books. It's yeah. not just liberals. It's like, oh, shit, you don't want me to read this? Oh, I'm not allowed to go see The Matrix? I'll buy a ticket for as good as it gets, and then I will go see The Matrix. Like, come on. Like, kids are going to find it. But it, what is frustrating is, kids aren't going to be able to discover it they're going to have to seek it out um but if anything it, it does kind of raise the profile of these books like gender queer is a really important book that you know should be read mouse don't even get me started right like oh my god it, yeah with with mouse i was just like what why <laughs> why <laughs> but like with like with a lot of those kids though who live in like poor urban neighborhoods mm. where there are no bookstores, where the library is not walking distance, and your teachers are, you know, prohibited from teaching these books. It's like, where are they going to get answers to a lot of the questions that they have about race in America? Right. They just need to worry about that sign from the Great Gatsby or whatever <laughs> Faulkner was writing in, in <laughs> Sound of Thunder. <laughs> Uh, all right speaking of childhood traumas um the other half of the book of this of the narrative that we haven't touched on as much is the story of mira's childhood and i guess young adulthood leading up to you know finding love and getting married being the only brown kid sucked i I, i'll (laughs) say that as a brown kid from alabama like i just related so hard to it like and like, I mean, I think the one chapter we want to talk about, right, is the um, the essay contest one, right? Like, where she has this hard-ass teacher who is just a hard-ass, but she, you know, is pleased with Mira's writing, and Mira wins this award and gets the ability to go speak in an event. And But the what's brilliant about the chapter is nothing is ever explicitly stated. You see that entire chapter through the eyes of a little girl. And you feel the pain as an adult reading the story. It's something Mira at the time didn't know was wrong. And I, I, I'm i pretty sure you guys have those experiences, right? Like when you were a kid, you didn't realize what was going on. And and most of those memories are kind of gone and cloudy and they come back every once in a while. But you're like, oh, shit, that happened. And that was the reason. Like, um, yeah, I mean, it's that kind of awoke a lot of stuff in me. Like kind of. When you're living in racism, you're kind of living in water and you don't know what's around you, if that makes sense. You're kind of like a fish in water. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, so. Yeah, I mean, um, like I mentioned, I didn't grow up amongst, I mean, let's face it, we all grew up amongst racism. We grew up in this country. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like explicitly, I didn't actually encounter explicit racism until I moved to, um, to D.C. for grad school. 
Um, because it's the first time we're actually felt like a minority. Yeah. And also like when you're surrounded by people who don't share the same experiences as you, you're kind of expected to educate them like all the time oh, and the emotional labor <laughs> that comes with it. And you know, for like a lot of a lot of like good intention white friends. You know, they think that they are, you know, being progressive and asking the right questions. And it's just like, but it's at the same time, it is very exhausting. And there are like, no matter how liberal they are, there's going to be boundaries where they won't understand the cultural context. And you see that with Mira and her in-laws, as well as her husband, um, that scene where like she's going to the dog's bar mitzvah. And bark, bark, bark mitzvah. <laughs> bark mitzvah. Yeah, she goes to the bark mitzvah, and like two of the neighbor neighbors or friends who who are there, they think that she is a servant. She's like she's the help. help. Yeah, and I'm like, what? Like one, she's pregnant. Like why? <laughs> like why are you making a pregnant woman like do work that you can easily do, like throwing away your plate into the sink? But like what was really cringe cringy for me in that chapter was her mom, her mother-in-law saying, oh, that can't be that can't be right. Like mm-hmm. you're mistaken. And it's like, how many times have we been told that we're crazy and we're like and it's just like we're not crazy. This is our life. We live through all of these microaggressions, but uh, the majority cannot see it. And I don't know. It, it it feels like a little bit of gaslighting in a way. It's like, am I overreacting? Am I just making this a race thing? But it's, I don't know. Like in the end, I was just like, yeah, well, that's a conversation that's not fun to have after <laughs> after you're proven right. I mean, what do you call unintentional gaslighting? I guess it's just erasure, right? It's just you know, just ignorance. But but, but here's what's interesting. So I, I, around the same time in the book. We're parallel path to a story of Mira's youth at prom with her boyfriend, right? Like, and so I think it's really easy to point fingers. And I think some of us are more guilty than others, depending on your life experience. But Mira was just as guilty of it, you know, at a point in her life. And, and she wasn't aware of it. And I think it's about what are those moments, those uncomfortable moments that you have to force yourself into to learn from? And this is, you know, it is exhausting to have to explain it to other people, Rira, which this is where fiction and nonfiction are great. This is where media is great. Because, again, it's great to be talking with other Asian people about this book. But this is a book like, hey, listeners to this podcast, if you are Asian, sure, get it from the library, but buy a copy of this book for your white friends that you don't want to have a conversation with. Right. Like that's um, and I and like I modern minorities, my podcast, I have a lot of my white friends from Alabama who listen to the podcast and I get notes from them. Like I never realized I was like, well, that's OK. <laughs> yeah, I don't have time can... to explain it to you. Listen to the podcast. <laughs> Rate it five stars on Apple, please. I did find it. Um, I mean, as diaspora Asians, let's say we really do get it from both sides. Right. Because we get the the racism from the country we live in but then we also get like the not um, american enough yeah, yeah the exclusion from our family back home that coupled with you know mira being a darker skin you know desi person uh like the colorism part was just i mean like we were mentioned like we we have that in the east asian diaspora too and i mean it's even more egregious there because like what's considered dark for us is not really that dark <laughs> in the whole grand scheme of things right I didn't. I didn't. Re- my co-host Sharon, when we reviewed this book on um, Quarantine Comics, she revealed to me that she is a dark-skinned Asian. I was like, "Really? <laughs> like, okay." But and and she gets that from her family. That's nuts to me. But you know, yeah. Mira talks about you know when she's in America, she's just another brown person. But in India, she's black. Yeah, I mean, and like no skin whitening. Um, fair and lovely are just. <laughs> oh yeah, fair and lovely. Yeah. Is that a, do you guys have what's what's the you guys have SK2? Like what do you guys have? Oh that's bougie. That's the bougie one. <laughs> oh I know. <laughs> that's all I know about Korean skincare products. It's SK2 is like the the Ferrari of 
skincare. It's made from Patera, I hear. Anyway. Like when when like I see Korean skincare products where they say whitening, I don't really consider it to be skin bleaching because it's not it doesn't have the chemicals to actually lighten your skin. When they say whiten, they mean brighten, meaning turning your dull like unexfoliated skin into something more dewy and shiny, but the marketing is there because they're like, oh, everybody wants to be like beautiful and and like fair. And it's like, well, I mean, if that's going to sell your product, sure. But that's not that's not what it is. But um, fair and lovely. It it actually is like a skin bleaching product. And um, yeah, it was kind of heartbreaking to read that part because I had I had uh, an Indian American roommate in college, and she is a darker um, Indian American. Which I was just like, "You're not that dark." I don't know why <laughs> your family is so like, like I don't know, so up your ass about this. But her sister is very, very fair. So growing up, she got a lot of. Um, like negative comments about oh you're never going to be able to find a husband mm-hmm. and she's just like what if i never want to get married and they're like well you're crazy that's not something that you know women should be able to do you need to have uh you need to have a husband not just mm-hmm. any kind of husband a husband who's like from the same background as you and it's just like it's the same in east asian culture as well it's just yeah I think as you get older, your parents' expectations just get lower and lower because they're like, hurry up. I also really enjoyed that one chapter where the whole entire family just like moves too fast on this blind date that she gets set up. The setup, the setup (laughs) with the neurosurgeon. (laughs) And I actually had a friend who uh, made the mistake of telling her parents that she was going on a date with somebody and they like, they went straight to, so when are you getting married? Before they even had their first date. Yeah. No, I mean, um, uh, I have dated Indian girls in my past before being married and a parent and all that stuff. And it's so crazy how fast your family goes to that when it's someone of your culture, right? <laughs> um, there's, a, you know, I have a lot of family in Southern California and my elder sister when she wasn't married and she would come visit. Like that exact story with the neurosurgeon has happened to my sister in Southern California. And it is just nuts it's just like that shit it's it's funny because it's true you know it hurts because it's true yeah i mean there's a reason why we don't tell our parents anything because all of a sudden our aunties know and then our grandparents know <laughs> and then we're getting texts from everybody i but you know there's a happy ending to this story and i mean the world still sucks <laughs> spoiler alert but it's you know it's uh, something about this book makes me cry differently every time i read it and um you know, the resolution with her son, the hope for her son, even the 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 kind of envisioning of her son, the moment with the neurosurgeon, she's afraid, I'm not going to have a son, the dreams of her son before Obama is born. But obviously, this whole book is a narrative and conversation mostly with her son. But the final letter to her son, you know, that was written when he was much younger than he is today. Um, it re- As a parent, it just reads really true on kind of what your hopes are. I can't solve this. I, I don't have all the answers this is the world you're going to inherit like um i it gets it gets me every time yeah i'm sure i mean to me it was it was very like i did feel the emotion and i did feel the hope and kind of the despair is not the right word but the helplessness of not being able to provide all the answers that she wants i'm sure if i were a parent it would be again doubly effective (laughs) the world right now is kind of like the problems didn't get solved with the 2020 election, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Things are still, I mean, there are things that are out of our control right now, mm-hmm. like outside of the United States. So it's a wild time to be a parent. Uh, I, my sympathies to you, Ramin, for having to raise. <laughs> I mean, know. but no, it's, uh, but when shit gets really down, it, it's, kind of, it's a double-edged sword, I guess is what I would say. You know, my daughter asks what I'm scared of, and I'm scared of anything happening to her. Yeah. It's the only thing that's that's the only thing that scares me these days because I can't afford to be scared about the other stuff anymore. I have to have hope. And at the end of a shitty day, at the end of a shitty news cycle or a shitty thing happening in our life that like the things that happened to Mira, 
I get to read her a book and I get to make sure she's better. I get to make sure the kids in her classroom are better because we make sure they know about Chinese New Year's and Diwali, right? It's, um, it, it really is. It's two, it's two sides of the coin. I feel like this proactive nature with my child as well beyond the, because what's the other option? The other option is I, I, I can't afford to be upset about this stuff. You know, like we have to persevere. And I, it really makes me, being a parent makes me reflect on my parents. Like I, Rira, I think you opened with this at the beginning of the episode. Like our parents didn't have time to deal with this shit. They had to put food on the table. They had to raise these little brats who were so hungry and needed shit all the time and, you know, needed to learn stuff. So, um, you know, that that's why that's why we that's why we keep going, man. Yeah, I feel like with with my parents, um, it it's so sad. I feel like they had this optimism of, <laughs> of like our child is being raised in America and she's going to be able to speak English without an accent. So she will be able to pass as an American, like and have a podcast, <laughs> assimilate enough to a point where like racism isn't going to happen to her. And like as a, like as a child, I knew that they had this optimism, and I really couldn't break it to them, being like, "Oh," <laughs> because like you would explain like some something your classmate said or some like racist adult would say, and you're just like well, they said this and your parents are like, well, what does that mean? Like, why are they saying that you're from North Korea? That's so like, do they not know geography? And it's just like, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's funny, like thinking about it, but, but it's just like, yeah, my classmates know geography. They're just saying that because they're, they're mean. And that's, you know, that's something that I really couldn't say as a kid or explain because they didn't have the vocabulary or the experience to um, frame it for them. And yeah, I I think that's just like the story of children of immigrants, you know, like once you go through it yourself, you think that you're you're going to be equipped to to like pass on that wisdom to your children. But at the same time, it's like, well. The world is changing. The way people are being racist is changing. Language is changing. How do you protect your children from that? And no one really knows the answer. I don't think you protect them from it, though. I think you equip them. Equip them, yeah. Because, to your point, it's changing. The things we experienced are not the things the next generation will experience. So they need to learn skills and mechanisms to learn and to adapt. That's more important than any, and how to be a good person in, and have grace in the face of all this shit. Um, <laughs> that's more important. Like, I, honestly, like, as shitty as Mira had it, as shitty as I had it, as shitty as you guys had it, like, it made me who I am. Like, those scars are, <laughs> I'm not saying I enjoyed them, but I'm not saying I, I wish them on people, but they made me who I am. They gave me the empathy and the understanding. Um, but again, there are some people in this world, <clears throat> the last president, who clearly had some bad shit happen to them and it went the other way, you know? But um, yeah, I, I think it's all about equipping. It's not about protecting. You protect as best you can. You put a roof over their head. You know, you don't do stupid shit. Um, but other than that, and, and I think that's kind of the conversations Mira had with her son. It's that too. I'm going to answer these questions as best and as honestly as I can. And then I'm going to debrief with my husband about it. And we're going to come up with a plan. <laughs> Yeah, and to your point, I think, you know, equipping not only our children, our children, but also, like, just everyone around. Like, like you said, giving this book to people that you think should read it to understand, like, here's one example of what growing up brown in this country feels like. This is what having a child who you know is going to go through similar experiences feels like. And, you know, I, I remember just her depictions of her fights with her husband and a lot of it is just that conflict of like her child looks like her. And so like she kind of understands what kind of world awaits him. Right. Mm -hmm. And how the world will see him. Is dad afraid of me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) I mean, I I had a, I had a girlfriend and in college, a serious girlfriend and she was white and we had this debate, like we weren't going to get married, but if she's like, if I had kids, I can't be walking through the mall and people not think it's my kid. My sister, uh, as well as my podcast co-host, both married to black men. Their children look black. You know, my daughter, it's 
my daughter's I'm not sure if she looks Indian or Chinese, but it's it's a thing, you know, and Mira's son looks like Mira, not like Jed. Um and never mind the kind of relationship. I mean, he is absolutely his father's son, I would imagine. But he doesn't look like it, right? And the world is going to judge him on, uh, you know, a term I've learned on modern minorities is this idea of black passing, white passing, brown passing, you know, like, that's a thing. The yeah. world, but Obama is a black president, but he's half white, right? So. Yeah. Oh. Just reminded of just the fact that we could have had a an America that would have been more accepting, but we decided to go another way. And I mean, it's not like America wasn't racist to begin with. I mean, look <laughs> yeah. at our history. Yeah. Look at the founding fathers. <laughs> look at the Civil War. Look at every it's conflict been, we've been in it's overseas. Been baked right. into our history. But yeah, like like the comments that I get from my family sometimes because they're they still haven't given up the hope of oh we're gonna have grandchildren from you but <laughs> it's like well your your partner is white and you're asian so you're gonna have like the most beautiful kids because mixed race children are beautiful and i'm they like are. wow that sounds <laughs> i was like i don't know how to like what am i supposed to respond <laughs> to with that but um yeah just like People think that being in an interracial relationship and having mixed-race children, it's like, yay, we defeated racism. Everyone is beige. Everything is great. <laughs> and this is a fantasy world where we've beaten racism. But it's not the case. There's a lot, there's a lot of baggage that comes with it. There's mm-hmm. a lot of conversations that have to happen. And, of course, fights. And mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. of those fights will never get settled. So. Um, yeah, all of all of that was very real, and <laughs> I think it pointed out a lot of um, they're good icebreakers. I think <laughs> like reading this book if you're not Asian, like you, like I, I feel like we kind of covered it already. But it's like here's the sampler plate of all of our <laughs> trauma. <laughs> I mean, this book digs up shit, doesn't it, guys? Like, it yeah, really... it does. It does. Um, yeah. All right. Well, as we wrap up our discussion, um, any last thoughts about a good talk by Mira Jacob? Buy it for your white uncle for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> See, as someone who used to work at a bookstore and and like when all the white people were like, we need to buy copies of Stamped. Like we need to make sure that all of the um, books about educating yourself on anti-blackness is is like a New York Times bestseller. The thing is, these people buy these books and they just leave it on their bookshelf. And there were people who went to go buy this book at my local bookstore, but we sold out. And then they would get irritated that we sold out. And they'll be like, well, like, I guess I'll have to just buy it on Amazon. And it's like, well, it seems like you're doing this for clout and not so much of understanding what black people are going through in this country. Well, but this is where this book is the evil genius of this book. And the I hate to say the evil genius of like pop culture, right? It's this is more for the masses friendly. You know, it it's a bunch of Instagram posts turned into a, a beautiful graphic narrative. It it goes down easier. It's funny. Like it, it's wrapped in a in a bubble of humor, right? Like um and so I think that's where a book like this, there's films and TV shows that can do that well. Um, you know, Never Have I Ever is, you know, there, there's, if I had to say as a South Asian, kind of like the three key pieces of literature uh, in this order uh, of release, not necessarily in excellence, but, you know, The Namesake, this book, Good Talk, and Never Have I Ever on Netflix. Like, you want to understand the Brown experience in America? There you go. Done. And they're <laughs> all kind of fun. And they're all kind of entertaining. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't love Asian parent shenanigans? Source of trauma, but also source of levity because we can all relate to <laughs> our parents being batshit about things that we don't understand. <laughs> but but these but all of these things um are important. It, it's 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 all good and fine for us to high five, but it, it's more important for these things to catch on in in the culture beyond. You know, it's not about brown people reading this and laughing at it. It, it really isn't. Um, and I think 
those things happen with and those those things pieces of the culture do happen with queer america black america asian america etc and i think finding entertaining ways to get the story out there to get buzz to get people talking but i think are important because you read this and then you want to go read the next thing hopefully yeah all right on that note that'll do it for our discussion of good talk by mary jacob uh, once again, thank you to Raman for joining us on his fifth reading of the book. Thank you. Thank you for the trauma. Thank you for the trauma. Oh, no problem. I have Anytime. a question, though. Have you have you read this book with the audiobook? Because I heard that it was narrated by the author. I, I haven't. Uh, wow. Okay. I guess that's reading number six. <laughs> yeah, reading I mean, number six. <laughs> but but comic, comic books is an audiobook. I'm not sure how I feel about that, you know? Uh, I'll give it a go. I think it's one of those experiences where you have to like have both, like have the physical copy and then listen to it as you're Mm. as you're reading, Mm -hmm. which I do quite often. I don't know about you, Marvin, but it just helps me immerse in the story a lot better. Sometimes I feel like sometimes audiobooks read too slowly, so I need to bump it up. Oh no, you have to speed it up. Like I read my audiobooks at like double speed. What do you (laughs) What are you doing? Uh. All right. Um, on that note, uh, Rira, what are we reading for the month of March? We are reading Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki. It's a sci-fi adventure set in California's San Gabriel Valley, and it has cursed violins and queer alien courtship over fresh made donuts. So I've heard a lot of great things about this book. Some of our book club members have already read it, and I'm really excited to read it. Yeah, aliens and Faustian um, deals plus violins. It's everything we could ever want from a an Asian American <laughs> sci-fi fantasy um, novel. And yeah, um, once again, Raman, thank you for joining us on Books and Boba. Um, if people want to find out more of your thoughts and if people want to listen to more of your thoughts, um, tell us about your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Modern Minorities, if you go to modmypod.com or look it up on anywhere you get your podcast, weekly conversations on race and gender, um, generating more empathy and understanding for all of our majority brains. There's actually an episode where we've interviewed Mira Jacob. Um, and then my other secret underground comic book book club podcast, uh, Qu- Quarantine Comics, qtdcomics.com. <laughs> every week that we we do kind of exactly what you're doing but we do it in comic book form uh so set phasers to fun from from alan moore to uzumaki and everything in between quarantine comics and modern minorities definitely check them out and there's some good talk and more mira jacob conversation on this as well yeah all right um well that'll do it for our discussion of our february book um thanks to everyone for joining us once again <laughs> yeah we'll see y'all next time on book sam boba thanks everyone right, bye Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening.